we had to learn everything and anything involved with uh, dairy processing. We had to learn all of the regulatory standards. We're heavily regulated. We have inspectors in, in the plant every two to three months at the very least. We learned process engineering on the fly. We certainly, you know, we didn't just do it all ourselves, but we've, we've been able to make some great relationships and great friends with people who have given us free advice, cheap advice, very expensive advice and everything in between. We've, we've learned so many different things, not the least of which being what it's like to scale up a product uh, that is not a widget. Hey, what's up, everyone? I think you're going to enjoy this conversation with Chad Townsend, the founder of Millie's Ice Cream. Millie's has 11 locations and a 10,000 square foot manufacturing facility where they make their own ice cream. It is delicious. I can tell you as an experienced consumer of their product, uh, they're really onto something. And in this conversation, we cover the humble origins where they started making ice cream out of their kitchen the ways they've thought about franchising and building out their manufacturing facility, and how they experiment with new flavors like lavender. All that and a lot more, here is my conversation with Chad Townsend. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Chad, welcome to Going Deep, man. I'm, I'm excited to be talking with you. I am uh, very excited to be on here. It's uh, It's been a while coming, but uh, glad we could get it scheduled. It was about time. So I want to go back in time to the start of Millie's. And what I've come to learn is that more often than not, when someone decides to just create a new company out of nothing, they're, the entrepreneur will have this feeling of something is missing. They, they, it's like they can see a puzzle and there's just this clearly missing piece. Yep. And, you know... There were other ice cream shops. There were other, you know, places to go get a dessert after a meal. And yet you felt called, compelled to start your own ice cream shop. So through that lens, can you talk about what you saw that was missing that drove you so hard to create your own ice cream shop and company? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I I was a chef in a past life and uh, had left the place I was at because I felt that it wasn't fair to those people as I was kind of looking to do my own thing. It wasn't fair to my search to be committing time to work and it wasn't fair to work to be committing time to my search. Fortunately, my wife, uh, you know, did, did well enough at the time that she said, why don't you just leave and we can start the search. And one of the days we were in the process of the search, we went and had some ice cream at a place. I certainly won't, get a men- won't mention the name because I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus. But then it was like, it was really lousy. And it said homemade on the, on the sign. And I'm like, ah, I feel like I could do better than this. I trained with a couple pastry chefs. I'd worked with some really talented chefs and had the general idea of making ice cream. Um, so we got this idea going that, I was going to buy an ice cream machine uh, to make uh, at my house. And it was under this weird guise that I wanted this ice cream machine. I wanted to play around with it. I knew I would use it in my eventual restaurant. And, but, I, you know, the problem was I didn't have any money. Uh, I certainly had a, not a great credit score. So I said to my wife, why don't you buy this thing? She said, fine, good deal. I'll buy it. You have to pay it off by the end of the summer. 
So we started doing that. And it was just a fun project to keep us busy to do whatever through the summer. And then people started coming to the place I was selling it. So we were just making it at home. People started coming in, in standing in line on Friday nights to have this ice cream. Grocery stores started reaching out. And what we found was that there wasn't a super premium local option. And so that was kind of the, the light bulb that went off, if you will, for us is, is why don't we do this? We might have something here. So we built a really small legal dairy plant because, again, we were doing this whole thing. We were doing a CSA, which was really weird. We thought it was going to be this great thing. This was pre-kids. We were going to be driving around on Saturdays. We were going to be listening to tunes, dropping off a pint of ice cream at people's house, 10, 15, 20 houses, Then it was going to be great. Well, like 80 people signed up. We had to divide our roots. Lauren was working a job. Uh, she, she is formerly in private equity. She was working a job, and then Friday night she would develop this route in, in a spreadsheet, and it turned out to not be a super fun thing. So we decided let's, let's ground this. We built a small dairy plant, uh, got legal, started selling it to grocery stores, started, opened our ice cream shop in Shadyside. And that was the other kind of piece of the, you know, the, the missing puzzle, if you will, was that there wasn't an ice cream shop that was fun serving a super premium product that we felt in town. It was, you know, places that you had gone to, you stood out into a, in a parking lot, you, people had been going there for 50 or 60 years, having soft serve, whatever it may be. But there wasn't a place that was like fun, playing good music, felt great, felt comfortable, had a good vibe, and was also serving great ice cream. And so we saw that uh, kind of, you know, gap and decided to build Shadyside, and that's been rolling ever since. And so coming to today, can you just give a little bit of context on where the business stands now from that original, you know, yeah. dairy uh, production facility that was put together and your first shop? Yeah. So 2014 is when it was, the business was founded, right? Incorporated, if you will. 2015 is when we got our uh, dairy plant built out. Uh, so it was 900 square feet in Homewood Point Breeze. Uh, today, uh, 2022, we have 11 locations. Uh, potentially five more queued up for next year and a 10,000 square foot dairy plant uh, among uh, e-com shipping to 48 states, uh, distribution through a large food service distributor and all of the kind of states that abut Pennsylvania and we're in 50 or 60 grocery stores growing. And so one way to think about uh, a kitchen, I mean, even even for a kitchen in your home, is that really is a manufacturing facility sure. at, at a micro scale of the dinner or the lunch that your family is going to be consuming. And that scales up into the commercial kitchen that sits within a restaurant. But what we have here, 10,000 square feet, we just walked through it, is a completely different can of worms than a commercial kitchen serving a single restaurant. Yep. So can you talk about what you had to learn in order to make that scale up possible and, you know, maintain the quality of your product and do all the things that come, come along with scaling the company. Yeah. We had to learn everything and anything involved with uh, dairy processing. Um, we had to learn all of the regulatory standards We're heavily regulated. Um, we have inspectors in, in the plant, um, every two to three months at the very least, not to mention third-party audits and all of those things. Uh, so we learned all of that. We learned process engineering on the fly. Um, we've, we certainly, you know, we didn't just do it all ourselves, but we've, we've been able to make some great relationships and great 
friends, with people who have given us free advice, cheap advice, very expensive advice, and everything in between. Um, but we've learned that it turns out that if you are making two gallons of ice cream, you don't just multiply all the bill of materials times 100 to make 200 gallons, right? There's a lot that goes into it from heating. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of different flows through pumps and without just getting into like the absolute weeds of all of the day-to-day minutia of, of problems. Um, we've, we've learned so many different things, not the least of which being what it's like to scale up a product uh, that is not a widget because if you're making a piston, right, you just buy enough metal to make a hundred pistons. Okay. Now it's a thousand. Um, one of the things that's really, you know, kind of interesting that we've had to learn is that we have a lot of overhead piping, right? Stainless steel piping. You may or may not have seen it as you go through the plant, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of feet. And you can't like just take that down and clean it. Uh, where if you're in a restaurant, right, you, you're cutting fish on a cutting board, you clean the cutting board in the sink, you put it in the dishwasher and you go. We can't do that because we have sticks of pipe that are 60 feet long. And so we have to, you know, run a cleaning cycle. And there's a, there's a, a tried and true process for doing that. But one of the, the interesting things is that my cleaning process takes the same amount of time if I produce one gallon or I produce 100,000 gallons. And so one of the things we've had to learn is scheduling and planning our day from an efficiency standpoint that we're not wasting a, a large portion of it cleaning, you know, because we still have to clean every day at the end of the day. I mean, it's, if, if we produce one thing, we still have to clean. If we produce 10 things, we're, the cleaning process is no different. And so that's been a really, really steep learning curve for us. I would say the steepest um, just because we, we make a mistake and maybe we get very low yield. Okay, now everybody stops for three hours and we clean. And so that I would say that has been the biggest piece of, of what we do um, is learning that, how to schedule the day, how to schedule shifts, how to balance and stagger people in, people out so that we're still within the constraints of a, of a food safe program, uh, but, but maximizing our output. Yeah, it's always so fascinating to me how folks will get into a business for a kind of core reason, which in your case was the flavor of the ice cream yeah. and how quickly, if you're successful, it literally turns into a completely different job. You're talking about optimizing cleaning schedules in a manufacturing facility, yeah. not creating custom ice cream flavors. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> we have binders upon binders of records and document keeping and I'm just not, I'm not naturally a, a document guy. Yeah. Like I've always been kind of a shoot from the hip, fly by the seat of my pants guy. And like, that doesn't work, you know, and, and to, 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 when I was listening to the one podcast this morning, it was really great because we're developing these SOPs and it's like, it takes a lot of time, right? We have to write them. And it's one thing to like, to, to write that SOP, but then to like, implementation is the hardest part. That's 90% of the job. And if you miss a step and you have somebody who, if you just write the SOP and you miss a step and you hand it to someone and you just expect them to then recreate it, they will. But somebody who knows the process pre-SOP will say, oh, well, you didn't say this in here. And so we're constantly tweaking those, working those. You know, we've, we just went through an audit and there's – the guy asked for uh, a document to document how we destroy our documents. And I'm <laughs> like, listen, like I don't really – we're not super proprietary. 
like we that's the thing about what we do is it's it's just milk cream sugar eggs salt like we have we certainly have recipes but like i'll share those recipes with whoever because it's not it's not just about that recipe it's all the things around it it's the execution all of that yeah and so I'm like, we just throw the documents away. He's like, well, then you have to document that you just threw the documents away. I'm like, this is crazy. So that's been another very big challenge for us. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, I want to get more into the business model. But before we do that, just to kind of drive home for folks. One pause, one sec. I'm just going to pull this out from under your foot. Um, Just to drive home for folks, the nature of your skews and the we talk about custom ice cream here there's a a famous you know malcolm gladwell anecdote about pasta sauce and how there was originally you know chunky and regular pasta sauce and then there's this you know meeting about how do we make more money how do we sell more pasta sauce and it was about customizing to the person that wanted you know more garlic that wanted less garlic that wanted you know spicy less spicy all these different things and that's how you now walk through the grocery store and you see an entire aisle of different pasta sauces that one could uh self select for. So in that same spirit, like I can remember, and we're, we're not shouting at any other ice cream uh, shops by name here, but I can remember where like, you know, it, there's, there's uh, chocolate, there's vanilla, there's twist. And then maybe there's, you know, the one, uh, you know, milkshake or, uh, you know, cookies and cream yep. flavor. Yep. And that was like the universe yep. of ice creams. And I was just in your shop the other day and my wife orders a lavender-based ice cream, yeah. <laughs> which is a pretty significant departure from that past. Yes. So talk a little bit about the flavor profiles. Yeah. So, uh, you know, being being that I was a chef and we have a bunch of people here who are very creative uh, culinary minds, we're able to kind of go a little bit outside of people's, you know, standard. We certainly have the standards, right? We have vanilla, we have chocolate, we have coffee, we have cookie dough, cookies and cream. Um, but we, we, part of our mission is to continually rotate some portion of those SKUs, uh, even if it's just in the shop. We've, we've transitioned that into grocery stores because we found that that does really well, having some level of rotation uh, in, the, in the pints in the grocery store. But, um, yeah, we, we, the lavender is a funny example because it's one that it's fine. I like it. It's fine. Uh, but we get a ton of requests for it. As soon as people have, have kind of associated it with spring and millies, and so like as soon as it starts to warm up, are you going to do lavender again? When's lavender? How about lavender? Um, and so we've you know just been continually bringing lavender out in the spring, and now it carries on a little further because people are still buying it at such a, at such a volume that we, we keep it going. And so those things... We, we pull back from other years, but we're also trying to like throw new things in there Yeah. Uh, every year, every talk season. To, talk to me about how that works because everyone can kind of picture, you know, those big uh, kind of glass open freezers that you can look in and decide what you want and get a taste. And then even once you kind of know what you want, ask for one more taste just to get an yeah, extra yeah, taste. Absolutely. Of the we ice encourage cream. tasting too. <laughs> um, but, you know, you, you have your, your standards, like you said, your chocolate, your vanilla, the, the tried and true, they're always going to be a, a, de- a consistent demand for, like, how many slots does the average Millie's uh, shop have for those tubs of ice cream in there? And then how many of those are kind of turning over with regularity, either seasonally or from an experimentation standpoint? Yep. And then what are, you know, your how many do, are your kind of old trustworthies? 
you know, 14 to 16 on average slots, if you will, flavors at, at any given moment. Um, we try to keep six, eight, ten of them that are always the same. Because one of the things that we found is we're able to build trust with people having some kind of more outside the box flavors if they're trying some of the, the you know, more standard flavors. So we always want to keep that because we also will see that we'll have, you know, a, a husband and wife, a boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, two people that are coming in, friends that want to, one wants to just have vanilla, one wants to go a little outside of the box. And if we don't have a, a good split of that offering, then we, then we lose one person or, you know, we don't get either of them. So we want to have, we want to be a, a kind of approachable, accessible for everyone. And from an experimentation standpoint, how often, you know, so I have a, a, a good friend, very successful entrepreneur who, you know, he'll be quick to tell you, I've get a hundred different ideas and 99 of them are terrible. Yeah. And like, like I need to, for my business need to focus yeah. on like doubling down on the things that matter specifically just in the spectrum of flavors, not all the other, you know, potential business model, sure. creativity ideas, which could also exist. But how often are you like, like I'm guessing these like, let's just try to make this ice cream. Let's try to experiment with it and iterate, iterate, iterate until it's either something worthy of actually sending out to the public or just nixing. Yep. And then on the second level, okay, we brought this out to the public and it either is or is not landing. Those seem like the two kind of, uh, you know, what's the, the trolley problem where they're like switching the, you yeah. know, the, the pathway back and yeah. forth. Um, yeah. So, so we certainly kind of have those, those two sections where we, where we decide, you know, where, if we want to go forth with it, you know, internally and then how it's received from a shop level. Uh, we're fortunate at this point that with the volume of the shops, we can have, a single run of a flavor and it will go pretty quick regardless of its popularity, right? It's maybe not going to go as quick as some uh, super popular ones, but the, we, there's not a lot left out to die anymore. Yeah. It wasn't the case so much in the first one or two shops. Um, but, you know, for example, we, we had a goat cheese flavor. There was goat cheese ice cream. Um, Rachel, our, our production manager, made that made it. She did a strawberry or a, a raspberry rhubarb jam for it. And I said go ahead make it nobody's gonna buy this yeah and it was one of our most popular flavors and so it's just really hard to to tell and i've at this point i've unless it's something that's so funky or so whack you know i just say all right let's you know let's figure it out let's r&d it and let's get it to a point where at least somebody here who likes this flavor profile is pleased with it and then we'll release it and it turns out a lot of times i'm, I'm proven wrong well, I mean, that's just a really compelling thing for a business to kind of have embedded into its culture and into the actual business model is like you have these 14 to 16 slots per store with consistent foot traffic. So you can actually, you know, it's a website that does or doesn't get traffic to it. One of them can run a lot of experiments. The other one can't, even if they have the desire to. And that's, I, I just think that's a very kind of compelling part of the business. Yeah. You know, and, and it's, it, it in a in a kind of a weird microcosm, right? This it's it's just an ice cream shop. We're just making ice cream, but we are able to identify now as we're we're kind of further along in the business these kind of human behaviors and things just from surveys around flavors. And we you know we have some really great people on our team that are thinking about things a little bit differently. Um, and I think you know to go back to the goat cheese flavor one, it's one of the stronger lessons for me as as the person running the business is that I have to ultimately trust 
these people who who I've hired and if I'm not if I'm hiring them and not trusting them and I'm just kind of like you know overbearing on their decision making then then I'm either not training them right or I'm hiring the wrong people um, and it turns out I'm often wrong these people are are all very intelligent hardworking driven people and so I've got to continue to give them more rope and you know at the end of the day, if they fail, I, I say to them often, like, we're not operating on babies' brains here. We want to be safe. We don't want to make people sick, obviously. But if a flavor sucks and we don't sell a lot of it, like, it is what it is. I mean, nobody's going to nobody's gonna die. And so, like, we have to, you know, I have to continue to give all of the people that work here the, the, the room to grow and, and, and be better. And they're, they, they, they've thrilled me so far with how excited and engaged they are. Absolutely. And another thing that thrills a, a team, a staff, is a genuine growth story. If, if the entire lake is just completely placid with no, you know, sort of rapids of any way, shape or form, not only does that not, you know, challenge anyone, but it's also like, okay, well, where are we going to go? Like, what's, yeah. what is there even to do? And you guys are scaling, you said 11 to potentially 15 or 16 locations, uh, e-com in 48 states that you're serving. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the different pillars of the business? Because we interviewed Bill Saris. Uh, uh, another kind of local candy person here yep. in, in the greater Pittsburgh region. And he talked, I was kind of surprised by this. He talked about them having five layers to the business, their online sales, their sales within the uh, store, the school fundraisers and on and on down the line. Talk a little bit about how that looks from Millie's standpoint. Yeah. So we're, we're, I mean, we're probably three or four, depending on how you categorize them. So they're certainly, you know, grocery pints, right? That's very simple. That's clean cut. We deliver those. We service them. We distribute them. We make them. Uh, there's obviously the ice cream shops. That's the bulk of our business. That is 80% of what we do is is those shops. And that's what we want to focus on. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of that like old cliche is like, I wanted to do everything and I never wanted to say no to anybody. And, I, and the idea from the beginning was like, okay, if we just keep bringing in continually growing revenue, like we'll do fine. That's like, that's, I thought that was the secret to like building a great business, but it turns out it's, it maybe isn't always like that. It's not just accept as many dollars in the door as possible because it puts a weird stresses on the team. It puts a weird stresses on the equipment, the space, all kinds of things. Um, so we're continually like looking at it. Once upon a time, we had a growth strategy that Shadyside was going to be an ice cream shop and we were going to distribute wholesale ice cream to restaurants, grocery stores. And then we found it's really hard to compete in grocery with a Unilever, right? I mean, billions and billions of dollars in ad revenue uh, that they'll spend to, to keep them in a, in a prominent facing on the shelf. Um, and we can't have that personal touch at the grocery store. We're a more expensive item. So $7.99 compared to a $5.99 for something else. And if you don't know us, what... What, like, why are you going to try us? Maybe we got great looking packaging. Maybe it's an intriguing flavor, but we can't explain our kind of origin story or what we are to, to the guest or to the customer. Whereas in the shops, we can come in, taste it. Oh, lavender. That sounds weird to you. Have a taste. We encourage tasting. If you don't like it, throw the spoon away. It's not going to gross you out. You might you know, just say, hey, that's not for me. But we've had a lot of people that have tasted it and said, great. And we can have the fun music and we can have the great staff that we have because they are the, they're the key to the whole thing in the shops. Um, and then, so we have that huge kind of piece of it. 
we do have a small wholesale distributor, as I said, through a, through a large food service distributor. Um, and then we have, you know, other ancillary things, right? School fundraisers, those things, not to the degree that, that Saris would, but we roll those into the shops as kind of a community outreach, community building angle. Got it. And then the other kind of piece of terminology, particularly if you're saying you're, you're shipping, you, you have your distributor that can help with wholesale. You have the ability to sell online to these uh, 48 uh, by continental United States. Yeah. Um, and another terminology that I only learned here in the last two years is the cold chain storage yeah. or, or the cold chain for a supply chain uh, being, you know, different than the conventional supply chains that we're accustomed yep. to. And that was, you know, originally under the, uh, about the conversation of shipping uh, vaccines that needed to be temperature controlled at different locations, but in food service, particularly for something like ice cream, that sure. is an important part of the equation as well. So what can you tell us in terms of learning that part of the equation? Cause I am, I've basically just walked right up to the line of my knowledge yeah. and I have nothing more. Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, what I can tell you is that it's, uh, it's difficult, uh, from a sourcing, uh, that, that transit or that freight, uh, perspective. Uh, so it's difficult to find those people. Not everybody does frozen or refrigerated logistics. Um, it's expensive as you can imagine, because, you know, when you're talking about FTL or LTL, LTL is certainly more expensive than FTL in a standard freight shipping model because there's no guarantee that they're going to fill that truck. They often do, almost always do if they have good logistics planners. But you pay that kind of convenience fee to not ship the whole thing. But it's easy if you're LTL provider, you go, you pick up three pallets from so-and-so, you go pick up two from so-and-so, next thing you know you have 26 pallets, pretty easy to find. But you may not have people who are looking to ship pallets of, of frozen or refrigerated, you know, with the same kind of level of, of regularity that you do on standard shipping. So that's been one of the things that we have really had to think about as we're continuing this growth from a franchising perspective is, okay, we know we can support the store. We know what the footprint of the store looks like. We can design, we can give you a pretty tight budget. We've done it many times now. We know that. But the big question is, okay, you come to me and say, I want to open a Millie's in Orlando. Okay, how do I get the ice cream to Orlando? Because right now, some combination of local distributors, warehousers, and us, warehousing and distributing our own product, that's easy. The furthest, you know, the footprint is is Chautauqua, New York, down to like Wheeling, West Virginia, which you certainly don't want to do in a day, but you can if yeah. you have to. But I can't just send a delivery driver to Orlando, right, for twice a week. So where do we store it, you know, on the way to Orlando? Where do we store it when it's down there so we can have some economies of scale if we're going to ship a lot of product? Um, how reputable is the carrier that they're going to ensure that this cold chain has been maintained? You know, with something like if you're shipping refrigerated French fries, right? They certainly have to be refrigerated. But if those French fries go above 41 degrees for an hour, it's okay. You know, they're not going to get ruined. They're, fr they're refrigerated French fries or whatever, you know, uh, refrigerated produce. With ice cream, I mean, it melts, right? Like it melts and then it refreezes and there's no way to know until you know. Yeah. Right. And maybe something that is lettuce, right? You can see it, it's wilted, it's no good. But in a pint, in a bucket, you don't know. And I can't then open up all those buckets and taste them. And so 
it's it's a challenge. That's, that's certainly one of the most challenging pieces, especially with the the climate of how things are right now for us. So, talk just a little bit about the addition of these locations and how you're thinking about it then from like a geographic footprint. Yeah. Uh, so we're kind of thinking in concentric circles. One from a from a distribu- distribution standpoint. Two from a support standpoint. Uh, I think one of the things that is our kind of value add in this franchising. Uh, industry that we've identified as something that is a non-negotiable for us is is that the franchisee will receive great support because we want them to be very successful. There are franchises out there that you can go find that the director of development will say, "Hey, this is for uh, you know, a husband to run whose wife is very wealthy and they don't need to make money. They just need to stay busy or, you know, some partners in some format, they just want to get, you know, stay busy. We want people to be very successful at these, you know, at these ventures themselves. And so what comes along with that is great support from us. We want to be able to, we want to be either at your door within 24 hours or on the phone in a couple hours with you to help you walk through the the troubles that you have. And so as we think about growth from a concentric circle standpoint, that's the way that we can do it without, you know, absorbing so much overhead to, you know, be sending people to Colorado and Texas and California. So as we kind of grow, right, it's, it's now regionally or, or tri-state, if you will. uh, And then the next kind of concentric circle will be down into the Carolinas, right? And then adding people to the team that that can help to support uh, as we grow those. And franchising businesses, when they are at the upper, I mean, you could say this about most businesses, but franchising businesses really are, when scaled, when at, when actually super successful, some of the best businesses on the planet, McDonald's included, but we could go on and on and on down the list yep. outside the realm of food. But just sticking there for a sec. Um, what are what are you what have you had to learn in that realm in terms of operating it profitably? It's, it seems self evident that you know the more profitable, the better the experience is for my franchisee. Yep. There's going to be all sorts of down you know positive downstream ramifications. They're going to want to open another location and, yep. and you know do more financing. But what else, just in terms of practical execution, you know subtle tweaks to the business model that weren't necessarily a consideration when it was all Millie's owned and operated? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think, and that's exactly it, right? Is that there? There is, you know, we we learned opening one ice cream shop was difficult, right? As it is opening any type of business, opening two was many times more difficult. That was the most difficult location to get open because you're spread thin on resources. You really don't have enough income to bring on people to help doing this, to help do this. You don't have the systems in place, right? Because why do you need a system if I'm the guy who's making it, I'm the guy who's delivering it, and uh, somebody else is running it, right? It's just a one-on-one, hey, I need this. But then like, okay, what days do we do deliveries? Do we do deliveries every other day and rotate them? So there's a lot of lessons learned in that. And we're still certainly learning those. I mean, we, we only have three franchises, so we're still certainly learning those lessons. And I think our idea with the beginning franchises was to get people who, you know, are, are quote unquote true believers, right? People that 
believe in what we do that want to be a part of it. It's not just a guy who's looking for an investment property or a woman who's looking for some way to diversify her portfolio. It's somebody who <clears throat> either wants to work in this shop or be a strong, you know, overarching managerial presence. And so we are very upfront with them and saying, hey, you know, we're kind of new to this and we're going to go above and beyond to provide the service, but we need the feedback loop from you to tell us what you're missing. What training do you wish that you got? And so we're constantly, you know, to go back to the SOPs, trying to develop those, trying to create all of those systems to get everybody to feel like they're supported. And so what, what, you just said reminded me of the past interview that we did with Raji Sankar of Chula, where oh, she was talking about. Yeah, she yeah. she was one of the. Oh oh, oh yeah, so uh, what uh, what's her uh, what's uh, Raji and uh, Rondier? Yeah 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 yeah. Raji is fantastic. So they were one of the very first franchisors yeah. franchisees of Five Guys, yeah. and then translated what they witnessed in terms of that scaling into how they're thinking about building Chula. Yeah, and. It's just self-evident that they've made they, – not only have they made their mistakes in the, the five guys uh, as, as the franchisee, but they've almost like witnessed secondhand the mistakes of that scaling franchiser yep. so that they you know, can already kind of start on second base. Not that it's easy by any stretch of the imagination, but in order to get where they want to go. Um, what, what I'm hearing is if they're thinking about it like as part of their portfolio or whatever and they're looking for maybe like super passivity, that's not a great match for you. But I have to imagine on the flip side – Getting the partner who maybe I'm just making things up already has you know a Taco Bell, a a McDonald's, and a KFC, yep. and understands what that infrastructure can be, yeah. can kind of be this translator to you of look, I get that you're new. I'm not trying to be a jerk, yep. but like they have this in place, you guys should consider it. Yep. I love this, you should consider it. I hate this, try to avoid that. Yeah, no, that that's absolutely that's absolutely it. And we've been able to to pull from both of them. From from I met Raji. Uh, a while ago through a mutual friend um, a, a little bit before they had Chula, but when Chula was kind of in the incubation stage in their mind. And then Ron Deere has been a little bit more of a tactical uh, help to us. And, yeah. you know, they're both fans of ours. We've done some some partnerships with them. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's that feedback loop is, is the most important piece, right? And so, like, bringing – bringing in knowledge from the outside is, is certainly important. And so we're trying to walk that delicate line, right, with, with having someone that is sophisticated enough that they don't necessarily need to have that external systems knowledge, but maybe sophisticated enough to know what their own expectations are without just kind of like throwing themselves at the mercy of, of what we're giving them. Uh, to be able to say, hey, I would really like this. Hey, I would really like that. Um, so we want a, a franchisee that is sophisticated enough to 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 communicate that to us, um, but then also one who doesn't expect that we're fully polished yeah. and ready to turn out 100 locations a year. So that's, you know, finding those people, and that's really important, right? We spend a lot of time with with the potential future franchisees to understand, like, how do we like you? Do you like what we do? Because there's a there's a huge social component to Millie's too. It's really important to us that it that all of those things are wrapped up uh, in what we do. And and so if people aren't necessarily buying into what some of our kind of belief systems are, 
you know, it doesn't make them better or worse or whatever than us, but, but that's part of what we do. That's part of our presence. And so they have to be willing to buy into that too. Makes sense. All right. Couple fun questions I'll say, and then we'll, we'll, uh, aim towards wrapping up here. Uh, so you're in business with your wife. Yes. Uh, what have you learned about navigating that kind of double layer complexity of being business partners and life partners? Yeah. You know, I've, I've, uh, we've both answered this question a lot. Uh, she, she started, you know, she kind of helped bankroll the whole operation in the beginning when I couldn't really take a salary because we weren't really making any money. So she was able to... How know, long pay. was that, if you don't mind me asking? How long was she... Were you not taking a salary out of the business? Oh, it was probably two to three years. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, there was a portion through COVID, yeah. right, where we... It was important to us to keep our employees employed and, you know, we could figure it out. She does some consulting on the side. And so she's, you know, she's an absolute rock star. Um, but, you know, it's really weird. We don't have, like, some people say that the key to be working with each other is like they go home and they don't talk about work and they come to work and they don't talk about home. Yeah. But like, it's so intertwined for us and we love it so much. That like sometimes we have to say, all right, let's just can we just stop fucking talking about Millie's? Yeah. But most often, like we're at home, our kids take up a ton of our attention. Then the kids go to bed and we're sitting there. She's on her computer. I'm on my computer, and or we're just talking about something. Yeah. We're having a drink, just talking about Millie's, what we want it to be, because there's a lot of like fun and exciting parts to that too, and often it can get boring, right? When you're talking about the nuts and the bolts, like, okay, what are we going to do, you know, for this board meeting? What are we, what's the, you know, this PowerPoint going to look like? But more often than not, we're talking about like, okay, what, you know, what does five years look like? What does 10 years look like for us? What, you know, yeah. what, like, what are we going to build this thing to? Um, so I, it, that's just a lot of fun for us and we just love being a part of it. And I mean, I think one of the challenges with relationships is, you know, either the the receding or the lack of a shared interest. And yes, it's good to also hike or do whatever yep. other stuff, rock climb, whatever it is yeah. that you do with your time. But the ability to kind of have this common shared interest where it's not just, you know, the clock in, clock out type of yep. experience, but something you guys are, you know, all in on and get to share that together. To me, having not done it, it sounds like the kind of idealized version of what it can be, which is like, Hey, we can always, you know, you're going to talk about your kids a lot. Yep. You're going to talk about your business a lot. Yep. That's most of the hours of the day. You can find something yeah. else to lay on top, but those are kind of two things that you get to have in common. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, one of the things, uh, that, that we're talking a lot about right now is that we are, we're trying to figure out, right. Cause like everybody else, we have a mission statement. Uh, you know, I could show you the mission statement all the, it's in the handbook. It's kind of, uh, okay, it's a mission statement. Yeah. But we want to distill something down into this kind of one sentence that we can tell everybody who works for us. And that's, that's hard. And so tomorrow we're going to be in the car for eight hours driving. And, and this morning she's like, oh, you know, we can just kind of brainstorm this whole thing out. Yeah. And so, you know, we'll listen to some music, we'll listen to podcasts, we'll just kind of shoot the breeze and, and just keep driving. So it's, you know, those are a lot of, those are enjoyable moments. Get this camera ready just to have your hand on the lens. Um, so tell me about the tattoos. Uh, yeah, so I got these tattoos uh, the day before the Shady Side Shop opened up. Um, so you had skin in the game from yeah, the jump. Yeah, 100%. Um, and people are like, oh, is it? have to do with locations like no I just there was a great uh, a guy I knew and he sent a text around to a couple friends and we were having some beers and he said hey I'm usually booked up for months and months and months 
Uh, but I had something open up on Thursday and they said, oh, you know, maybe I should get a tattoo. I said, maybe I should get an ice cream tattoo. And they're like, yeah, go do it. And so I went and did it and that's great. But I want to add some to it, but yeah. it's been been hard to build so do you recommend that for folks starting a business to get a tattoo get a of the tattoo thing they're selling the before business. they actually launch yeah yeah absolutely 100 <laughs> percent. and then you know people ask me all the time like what if millie's goes out of business which is an awful thing to ask yeah. somebody but you know you'd be surprised how much you get asked and uh i you know i, I don't really have a good answer for that so <laughs> i'm like uh, caught off guard uh, yeah. i don't know what i'll do i guess i'll just tell people i like ice cream yeah well if, you, if there wasn't enough reason to kind of continue working hard and everything yeah. having to deal so with i don't it, look like a fool yeah that's really the main reason yeah. to get the you know the family <laughs> business part of it um, awesome chad this has been fantastic i really enjoyed talking about this with you and thank you for the tour yeah. uh, of the facility earlier before we ask our standard last two questions yeah. uh was there anything else you were hoping to share today that i just didn't give you a chance to no, I I uh, I thought this was a great conversation. Had a lot of fun uh, just talking about Millie's, talking about you know being in business, doing fun stuff. Right on. Well, if you haven't tried it yet, I recommend it. Obviously, I uh, had a perfect excuse to take my wife yeah. to do a little research of before. Yeah, the absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, but it's it's a uh, it's absolutely delicious. Um, for folks that want to learn more, maybe um, you can't necessarily make it out to a physical location. What digital coordinates can we provide people that want to learn more? Uh, yeah, so uh, we've got a large Instagram presence. Um, so uh, it's just at Millie's uh, is our, our Instagram presence. Um, our website, uh, milliesomemade.com. Um, we are on, we are trying to build more presence on other platforms. It's, uh, it becomes difficult uh, without a dedicated person to build that content for you, but that's what people are looking for these days. And, um, it's, it's really a great resource. So we're trying to build all those things. When we get off, remind, uh, pull up the Colin and Samir interview with the ice cream maker guy just to show him. You know what I'm talking about? Um, awesome. We're going to link all that in the show notes at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast where you can find it for every episode of the show or in the app where you're probably listening to this right now. But before we let you go, Chad, uh, I'd like to give you the mic one final time to great. issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. The actionable personable personal challenge is very simple. It is to go spend some of your dollars, uh, regardless of what you're currently spending, with somebody who lives within 50 miles of your house. It doesn't have to be food. It doesn't have to be clothes. You know, it's a it's a really weird time we're in, and it there are a lot of online presents that you can certainly buy, and I have a tough, you know, sometimes things are tough and I certainly buy things online, but <clears throat> we try to challenge ourselves to go put some money into somebody's pocket uh, that whether they're making food, whether they're making honey, whether they're making clothes or shoes or arts or crafts or whatever. And it doesn't have to be thousands of dollars. Yeah. Go spend five more dollars this week with someone. Buy a half gallon of local milk. Yeah. Just do that. <clears throat> I love it. I also just inspired, obviously you make food, um, by, you know, there's all this conscientiousness about sustainability, but also like where is you know, locally raised, yep. locally grown, locally made, whatever. Um, and the correlation there between the intimacy of the product where, you know, I'm sure that my TV at home was assembled literally on the other side of the planet yeah. before it, you know, was floated across the ocean and yep. hung on, hung on the wall there. Um, but the things you're putting in your body, 
are particularly and the things you're putting on your body like you said clothing yep. are particularly salient that you you know that that's made the right way made in a kind of um a way that's not only good for the overall environment but good for you yep. from an actual input standpoint so that's something that i've you know i talked about the other challenges i've been doing that's definitely been one that's uh, on my list yeah and we you know who wants to live in a world where you reduce your face-to-face contact with another human I mean, that's what we are made to do, right? We're made to interact. And again, like I know it's easy. I, I, I've done it. I do it. I just go online and, and buy something and it's sent to my house within 24 hours. But, you know, go talk to a dairy farmer. Go, you know, it, it, it will help everything in the world. It will help you understand what people are going through. It will help you understand what your dollars are going to. If you just like, okay, we just get up and something arrives at our door and who wants to live in that robotic environment? And I'm not holier than thou. I, like yeah. I said, I, I certainly do all those things. But just go buy a half gallon of milk. Go buy a pint of Millie's ice cream. <laughs> a little bit better every day. Uh, Chad, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming Thanks. on Thanks for having me. This is fun. We just went deep with Chad Townsend. Hope everyone there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with Chad. If you enjoyed it, I would encourage you to check out our past two conversations with Raji Sankar of Chula and Bill Saris of Saris Candies. Both of them are building really big, interesting companies in the food space like Chad. And I think if you listen to all those conversations, it will connect a ton of dots about how that world works. I took a lot away from it. And I took a lot away from our forthcoming interviews that are dropping in the coming weeks. So hit subscribe. You don't want to miss them. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.